You're listening to Table for 10 Billion, a limited podcast series from the World Bank examining the most important issues in food and agriculture. There are more than 7 billion people on Earth, a number that grows every day. And every one of those people needs to eat. Despite the enormous population growth over the last 50 years, production has kept up, and there's more than enough food to go around. That's a remarkable achievement. Unfortunately, it hasn't meant an end to hunger. Today we ask, why is hunger so prevalent? And why is it growing? I'm Jason Fields, and with me are Hanan Ahmed and Christopher Brett. Hanan is a senior agriculture economist, and Christopher is a lead agribusiness specialist at the bank. Thank you both for joining me. Can we start with you, Christopher? Let's just talk about the basics. How does the world feed itself every day? This is really an important fundamental question. And it's a question that the World Bank looks at on a day-by-day basis, particularly here in the agriculture and global food practice. We, we are challenged here. Every day, the population is rising. Every day, the planet or our basic production systems are being challenged by droughts, uh, climate change impacts, floods, all of that array of activity. There's also the pests and diseases and so on that we have to deal with. So that question of feeding 7 billion and the number of courses rising is becoming a challenge. We are focusing on building a much more resilient system. And to feed those 7 billion, we're looking at how do we improve, you know, the technologies around agricultural production, food production, food systems, all of these words are very relevant to this area. And technologies is not just about what we think about technology in terms of a phone. The technology is about the improved seed varieties, the improved fertilizers, the way that we can look at our soils and how we can improve the soil nutrition to to feed those crops. And also how do we change the growing seasons of these crops, developing varieties which take less time to plant, to grow and mature so that they can come into the markets quicker. So we look at how do we improve water management, the irrigation, the soil management to retain moisture, retain soil nutrient, improve soil quality through organic matter, and of course, that, as I say, that crop we plant. We also look at the systems around this. How do we mechanize? How do we improve that production and productivity in terms of a person? But then, of course, only half the story is actually growing the crop. The biggest half also is how do we get that to the consumer, particularly when the consumer can be so far away from the production. And this is where all the agricultural logistics, the crop services, all of these kind of areas that come in where we give those services to farmers to produce, but those services in the supply chain, where places we need cold storage, places that we need really good quality warehousing, transport, shipping, all that kind of infrastructure that efficiently and competitively moves the food crops from A to B. If I could just interrupt for a second, just to talk about what A to B is, it can be thousands of miles, right? Very few people actually get their food directly from farmers. Now, you're completely correct here. We, we live in an environment of 
local value chains, which, of course, where we are here in the US, that could be a farmer growing something in a neighboring state or a neighboring um, community, and we buy it direct. Then you've got the more uh, national supply chains, regional supply chains, then global supply chains. So these supply chains get longer and longer, depending, it can, of course, depend on the product, but also can depend on where the resources are for that crop to grow. Obviously, some of the crops that we consume in the US, like cocoa through chocolate, the coffee, all these kind of commodities, they tend to be grown in other areas which are more suitable for that growth and then get brought through this supply chain system, these links that connect us to different parts of the world. The other thing, of course, just to think about here, Jason, is that crops are very seasonal as well. So in some parts of the world, we could be in a in the point of planting, whereas in other parts of the world, we're in the point of harvest. The consumer wants a continuous supply of food. They don't want to buy food and store it for three or four months for their consumption. They want to be able to go and buy it on a weekly basis, even a daily basis, depending where they are. And it's interesting because I'm just about to turn 50 years old. And I remember a time when you couldn't get certain types of oranges, for example, if it was in the, you know, the fall, there were other fruits, vegetables, even meat. It, it was a timely thing. And now we expect everything to be available at all times. You're completely right there. A lot of this comes down to the sophistication of these supply chains. I, when I grew up, you're talking about oranges, strawberries was something you saw for two or three months a year. Now you can see them 12 months a year. So the question is, how do we do it? When you look at the agricultural supply chains and all these systems, it's based on developing a variety which can grow efficiently in a certain location. And then that crop can be harvested and transported for a period of days to get to a supermarket and then get to the consumer. So these crops have to be robust. They, can, they are, as we would say, perishable, but perishable over an extended period of time now. And also, there are much more sophisticated and competitive systems which are growing products much closer to the market. It's not just about these long transport supply chains. It's also, we've got situations now where we've got the urban farming systems, where people are planting herbs and spices in old disused warehouses and supporting them with, with just power connections to create light and heat, and competitively can produce those products intensively and supply to the market. So distance is one thing, but also shortening the supply chains where people want that product, where there is a demand, then technology and systems can adapt and change and bring the supply chain closer if necessary. And with all of that, the technology, the management, the logistics, and all the people involved in making that happen, we do technically have enough food but we do have a lot of hungry people. Anand, can I turn to you now and ask you how many people are hungry and basically why that's the case? That's an excellent question because the answer to it really puts uh, the reality um, in front of us. So let's start on a positive uh, note. So between 1990 and 2015, largely to a set of initiatives by the global community, the proportion of uh, undernourished people in the world was cut in half. And as we know, in 2015, 
the UN member countries adopted the sustainable development goals. And one of those goals was to achieve zero hunger by 2030. Some of these achievements, which have reduced hunger and undernourishment between 1990 and 2015, have been made possible because of improvements in agriculture productivity and farm livelihoods, reductions in poverty, especially in rural areas, job creation along the food system, investments in technology and innovations, and many other factors. But a recent 2020 UN report called State of Food Security and Nutrition shows that after years of decline, hunger is once again, unfortunately, on the rise. And it has been rising even before the arrival of um, COVID-19 pandemic. So this report highlights that almost 690 million people went hungry in 2019, which is an increase by 10 million from 2018 and by nearly 60 million in five years. And the number of people affected by severe food insecurity, which is another measure that approximates hunger, shows a similar upward trend. In 2019, close to 750 million people, or nearly one in 10 people in the world, were exposed to severe levels of uh, food insecurity. And so considering the total affected by moderate or severe food security, we have an estimated 2 billion people in the world who did not have regular access to safe, nutrition, and sufficient food in 2019. Asia remains home to the greatest number of undernourished at about approximately 380 million people. Africa is the second with about 250 million followed by Latin America and the Caribbean, where the estimates show it's around 48 million people. So basically, we see that the world is definitely not on track to achieve one of the sustainable development goals of zero hunger by 2030. And if the recent trends continue, the number of people affected by hunger would definitely surpass 840 million by 2030. There are two things from what you've just said that I'd like to make sure people understand. It, first of all, hunger is not evenly distributed at all around the world. There are about a billion people in Africa. You said that more than 200 million people are affected by hunger. Just so people can see that it's not the same everywhere. And that's obvious, but at the same time, you can see how bad it is in some places. The other thing that I think we should also talk about a little bit is the effect of COVID-19. The numbers that we have are from 2019, and that's before the huge economic disruption caused by COVID. Would one of you want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing from COVID and what you think the impacts might be? It's really difficult to know exactly how many people are facing hunger as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we do know that a preliminary assessment suggests that the COVID-19 pandemic may add between 83 and 132 million people to the total number of undernourished in the world in 2020. The COVID-19 impacts, specifically as a result of the lockdowns, are currently having 
simultaneous impacts on both food demand and food supply. So on the demand side, the effects are through income and remittance losses that have reduced the household's ability to purchase food. And the supply effects are through the disruptions that we have been seeing in many countries, including here in the United States, to the local markets that have reduced food availability. And these disruptions include movement restriction on food trade, closing of the wet markets, slow adjustments of the supply chains, and of course, the lower availability in, of labor across the entire segment of the value chain as a result of the movement restrictions. And of course, there, we have also seen closure of some firms in agricultural value chains. And last but not least, we are seeing limited access to agricultural input for the next season's uh, production. And so the setback throws, this setback throws into further doubt the achievement of the sustainable um, development goals of zero hunger by 2030. On your question regarding the disparities that we see across the different regions in the number of hungry people, one thing we do know is that the food system itself is driven by so many factors. And each of these factors, the state of each of these factors varies from country to country or broadly speaking by region. So there are the demographic country, uh, factors. Some countries have higher population growth and the urbanization rates are, are occurring at a higher rate, which pushes, which puts pressure on the food system to, to produce more food demand increases. There is the socioeconomic factors, and there you look at the income distribution of individuals and households, the disparities in the market opportunities and the labor force. There is also the sociocultural factors. There is also the environmental factors when we consider the differences across regions in the level of natural resources and endowments, the impacts of climate change. There are also the policy factors that are driving the food system, which are also quite different from region to region. But there is also differences in the level of technological innovations and the science that help us produce or make the most use of our limited resources to be able to feed everyone globally. And of course, last but not least, one of the main drivers of the food system is geopolitics. So when we look at international trade measures, political stability, and globalization. It's also what you said, put it together with something that Chris said, the technology that you're talking about is not necessarily the latest GPS or anything else. Sometimes it's just a matter of having a refrigerator or large enough refrigerators. If there's not enough refrigeration, then there's going to be food shortages. Is that accurate, Chris? No, there's a very strong point here. This comes back to these uh, global logistics points and so on. A lot of the countries, of course, we're looking at here, cold storage is vital, you know, for several reasons. One, of course, is the food loss and waste point that, that they need to build up these more perishable goods to be able to you know, flow into the, the growing domestic markets that has been mentioned. Those markets are looking for good quality, nutritious foods. 
But also there are the, the export markets, which create a lot of business opportunity for many of the other countries as well to export to Europe, to export to other parts of the world, particularly the MENA region, the Middle East and North Africa region, that are vast importers of, of fruits, vegetables, meats, all range of products. They're only about 12% self-sufficient on food. So when you talk about the refrigerator, you've got to start really imagining these huge, great cold storage warehouses, which are located you know, close to logistic hubs like airports for air freight of goods. But also there's a growing uh, requirement and investments in cold storage uh, units, you know, coming up closer to the cities, to the domestic markets. Uh, the World Bank has been very successful investing in supporting governments in laying out the infrastructure for these cold storage. There's a huge um, investment in the re renewable energy systems, solar powered systems to be able to run these cold chain systems. One of the biggest challenges for many of the governments that, that we work with and support has been access to affordable electricity. No power, no cold chain. And affordable power, no cold chain. So we have seen places in the past where cold chain systems were established, but they could not be operated because of the cost of their power and basic operations. So we're seeing a lot of new technologies taking this over. And the other thing, of course, is the most important thing about technology is to be able to plan the flow of these goods through value chains to reach cold storage and importantly to keep moving, not to be held there for too long. So the storage use can be, it can be maximized in terms of product arriving and product leaving. Inventory management becomes critical. And the final point I'd like to add is that our analysis of food loss and waste in the agriculture, agriculture production and marketing sector is staggering. There is so much waste and lost is equivalent to the output of China. And one third of the global emissions from agriculture is actually lost in the food waste. So we, are, we have got so much to do to increase access to food, just focusing on that space as well. And you're not going to have strong infrastructure in places where conflict is racking the country. Would one of you want to talk a little bit about how fragility and conflict play a role in hunger? Just to say that this is one of the major areas that the World Bank is looking at. We're trying to raise 25% of our investments in the agriculture and food global practice within what we call the FCV space, this fragile conflict violence space. You know, the World Bank is the first mover and investor in many countries with other UN agencies, but we're really investing in governments that really need the support. Fragility, conflict, violence is really a root cause of hunger. It's a root cause of poverty. We do a lot of work with the World Food Programme, and they do great work in supporting the basic needs of, of people in these countries. And it's what's sad is to say is that very often they work with repeat clients. Every year they're supporting a same core group who are stuck in a lot of violence and conflicts, but also where these migrant centers, these migrant hubs have established across the world. So we are very focused on this. Where there is conflict and violence, it's very hard to build robust or strong production and agribusiness systems. Those systems just become very much focused on emergency aid, emergency food support. So these systems do not allow us in the long term to build reliable systems for agricultural production. 
we have to be at the core of building a peaceful platform, the core of working on governance so that governments can get and support and work with their citizens in a much more meaningful way and you know, encourage this investment. And just the last point I wanted to make here, we, we keep referring, of course, to, to the role of governments and the role of research and everything through these. But a lot of the investment comes from the private sector. Without private sector investment, it doesn't multiply up. It doesn't leverage long-term investments. This word supply chain, this word agribusiness, these are very much private sector activities or should be private sector activities as a lot more of these countries come through that evolution process and become much more liberalized and much more focused on engagement with the communities or engagement with their uh, citizens. Lastly, as we're running out of time, I'd like both of you, Hanan, first to talk about reasons for hope, possibilities that the situation will improve, that we'll get back on a track where hunger is decreasing as opposed to increasing. That's an excellent point that you have raised. Look, there is still a long long road ahead to achieving a world without hunger and malnutrition, Uh, but we do have reasons to be optimistic. And if you want to call it, you can say cautiously optimistic. Some of these reasons include the many technological innovations that allow us to produce efficiently, making the use of the scarce resources and be able to move those crops produced and the food that is developed out of these crops and get to our table in an efficient way as well. And there is also ongoing strong interest by governments everywhere to invest in their food systems in a manner that ensures their citizens at all times have access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food. And there is a renewed interest to focus on policies that help support this with many international organizations rallying behind this agenda. And last but not least, we see a lot of private sector participation in food system related investments. And this is increasing, which is helping bring additional financing to countries beyond what the public sector is capable of affording. And so we need to leverage the global optimism or enthusiasm to transform the system to ensure that people everywhere at all times have access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food to acquire a healthy and productive life. How do we do that? The answer is not so easy, and there is no one size that fits all. And there are many factors involved that are interrelated, broadly focusing on transforming the food system where on five sides. One is on the innovation side, one is on the incentive side, a third is on the institution side, and also investments and information. And in terms of some specific action points to transform the food system, we can think of few critical ones, which is promoting climate resilient productivity growth, because we do know climate change is one huge factor in determining how much is produced and our ability to feed the people around the world. Strengthening the capacity for prevention of crop and livestock pests and diseases, improving natural um, resource management, such as water and land, 
And of course, addressing the interlocking characteristics that are constraining the development of the agriculture and food system in fragile and conflict um, states. But it also means that we need to make nutrient adequate diets affordable for better nutrition outcomes. We need to invest in reducing food loss and food waste. We need to expand the use of digital technologies. We need to develop more efficient agrologistics along the line that Chris has been mentioning. And we also need to improve the management of markets. But we also need to strengthen micro, the small and medium-sized agribusiness enterprises along the entire food value chain. And most critically, we also need to strengthen our early warning systems that help us promote early action. Um, And these early warning systems, they help us make real-time assessments of crop performance and provide early alerts about potential food shocks that can identify risks before they actually materialize and help facilitate proactive risk uh, mitigation. So these are just some thoughts from my side on how to transform, what we need to do to transform the food system. Yeah, Jason, I'll just come in and say a last comment there. Yeah, please do. Just say what also we're doing an awful lot of work on is really developing human capital. We've talked here about the economic, the social, the environment, but the human capital is where we need to do more and more investments. And we're really focusing on how do we engage with that populace, the hugely growing youth population, particularly in Africa and Asia. There is staggering numbers of youth coming through the system, coming up, looking for jobs, looking to um, really invest their time meaningfully and get good jobs and contribute to the development of their nations as well. So just in summary there, the youth is an important area of focus, and we've really got to focus on human capital development to make sure that the hope for the future is there. Thank you both. Hanan Ahmed and Christopher Brett, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to Table for 10 Billion, a podcast from the World Bank. We'll be back next month. I'm Jason Fields.